I'm Kelly. And I'm Katrina. And, and welcome, welcome to, to the Glass, glass Chest. Hi, Katrina. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Kelly? That was so fake. Oh my gosh. I, <laughs> <laughs> I was in woke. I was in customer service mode. My bad. I'm good. I'm here. Bro, say. Look at us being here. That's that's more than enough. Um, all right. Well, welcome back to another episode. Uh, today we're going to be talking about a subject that maybe a lot of you can relate to. Raise your hand if you've been to school. Me. Both of us are having our hands raised up. Raise your hand if you've ever done any research or deep diving through the internet to answer a question you had. Both of us are raising our hands up again and you probably are too because you should have done research of some sorts whether it's whether you're trying to figure out what to eat or what type of clothing you should get or maybe there's a particular socks that, that, that you want to read the reviews that's research of sorts so you should hopefully be raising your hand up right now. Why are we whispering? No thanks, I'm done. Okay, cool. So welcome to the episode <laughs> on research, everyone. We are going to be talking about research and our experiences. Um, so research is research encompasses a lot of subjects of sorts where you're trying to seek out information to a topic or question that you're interested in. For this episode, we will be talking a bit about more so the academic side of things. And just to preface, we do have a limited research background so our experiences may not be applicable to all projects or fields uh, with that being said research isn't just academic and it's important to take actionable steps and to review sources carefully when trying to understand a concept or make a decision whether it be vaccines or your diet or what type of sweater you're trying to get at the optimal costs. There's a lot of ways that research is applicable and the skill sets in order to review things carefully is important to making those decisions and answering those questions. Before we dive right in, uh, we just wanted to give a a small quick background about Katrina and myself. So if you haven't already listened to the first episode, which you should, it's about us. <laughs> Again. <laughs> oh, we mentioned that we are both two recent graduates with a STEM background. Katrina, would you like to elaborate on your experiences within that background and your research and whatnot? Sure. So... I always thought myself an academic when I was younger and growing up because I excelled in school and I didn't mind what I was doing for the most part, you know, studying. And I actually test half decently, so that helps. Go little rock star! <laughs> that helps in our standardized testing school system. And nobody really talks about the ins and outs of research. Obviously, when you're in elementary school and high school, nobody has anything to say about that. But then even as you get into post-secondary it's not talked about properly and all that entails other than it's glorified to be like oh everyone does research if they continue academia because I didn't know I figured the only way to know is to try 
and without locking myself into a research-based postgrad thing, I explored the concepts of academic research in my third and fourth year of post-secondary. And I don't actually hate research. The writing and the technical stuff of it, sure, that, that's unpleasant. And I don't want to talk about stats. Stats aside. No one understands stats. No, no. It's, it's okay. That's why you have statisticians. Stats guys. Or gals. Yeah. Stats folks. Just hire someone to do your stuff. Anyways, my issue with research was always narrowing down into a topic and choosing one scope to investigate instead of, I know you can do like cross-sectional or like wide range analyses, but those are a lot of effort. And then my other thing with research is, okay, I've done this research, what now? But having done some research, I think on the other side, I'm still kind of like, okay, cool. Still a little bit confused, but cool. That makes sense because the whole field of academia was just a blur, which is weird because when you're in high school, they constantly promote pursuing post-secondary activities of sorts, whether it's like a trade school or college or university. And university is looked on as this whole prestigious place to receive your higher education, which you can use to have good jobs or whatever. But what universities are, are facilities that promote academia. I had no idea what academia was back when I was in high school. I never understood what university was, aside from it being a stepping stone towards other types of schooling, just because the fields that I was interested in were more geared towards professional schools and healthcare. And so that normally needs an undergrad degree of sorts. So I never really understood that whole middle part about what the heck an undergrad degree is. I just know that you needed it to do other stuff. The further education you go in post-secondary, you are not seeking general knowledge. You're seeking this one, one little bean, this little rice of information. And that is what getting your PhD basically is. You're trying to find like this one, this one little, little thingy that no one has ever spoken about because who would talk about that but you? And so that's why no one understood it and it doesn't seem, like on one hand it's, it's glorified because it's like, oh, you super smart, you realize this thingy. But then on the other hand, it's like only a set amount of people can use that information or like even if it does benefit a lot of other people, it's those people who are actually facilitating and like putting that research to action who get credit. Yeah, uh, school's a scam. <laughs> Don't stay in school, kids. No. Stay, stay in school. Stay in oh, school. If, yeah. Stay in, in certain types of schools. You don't have to stay in school once you reach a level where you can handle not being in school but school helps it's a scam but it helps that's what a scammer would say so we're scammers anyway so thank you for tuning to the glass chest <laughs> we'll see you in the next anyways what is what is your research background kelly it's a bit all over the place actually is it all over the place kind of yeah um i have always admired the sciences I think it's just because growing up, I'm like, ooh, a microscope, you can see all the little tiny things. Ooh, chemistry, you put one in one and you get this whole other thing. Ooh, physics. <laughs> but yeah, science rules. Bill Nye. I, th I think that's actually the reason why I love science, just because the way it was presented was just, it, it was so innovative and 
cool and like you're producing new things or understanding new things beyond the stuff that was there. However, I do like understanding the stuff that's already there. So I also do love the social sciences. If we're gonna go into more detail, in terms of the sciences, I lean more towards the physiology, pathophysiology ends of things. I realize that I don't like bio as much as I thought I would and I don't like chemistry as much as I thought I would and surprisingly I do like physics but I don't want to use it for anything (laughs) (laughs) and I like space like I wish I learned more about space I always love space is cool yeah it is because it's like just it's it's, anything's better than here so yeah space (laughs) um but then aside from uh that side of research i think the social sciences are underrated there is a lot to understand with people and i do enjoy learning about that so some of the parts in social sciences that i was interested in or that i still am interested in are in relation to psychology Um, i took a lot of psych courses in my undergrad from like child psych personality adolescent psychology social psychology memory and also understanding teaching and learning through pedagogy as well as uh, population dynamics in relation to health and then using all of these sciences i realize that global health addresses everything because it's global wow yeah and i did take a global health course in undergrad um which was leaning more towards understanding disease in populations but there's a whole vast world of content in global health and research and again like there's a lot that i like to learn about but not exactly do but the stuff i like learning about and researching for those assignments when i'm not stressed are (laughs) Globalization and equity, refugee health, maternal health, global burdens of disease, health communications, understanding the importance of diversity in health research and diversity in leadership and diversity in spaces that have certain implications on health outcomes, Mm -hmm. as well as health policies. Don't actually like reading them in too much detail, but like hearing them from afar, hearing a lot of things from afar, I think are really interesting. That's what I was going to say. I was like legal it <laughs> see i like reading the summaries if you if i were to read a whole policy itself it's like oh, why are there so many pages you read the conclusion of the research paper yeah that's it or just, just the abstract you do your abstract skim and realize is this is that useful <laughs> <laughs> what about you i don't have any thoughts my brain is just <laughs> like elevator music laggy elevator music um, <clears throat> my research interests are very physiology-based. Unlike Kelly, I actually really liked biology. I liked it in high school, and going into post-secondary, continued to like it. So, physiology in the sense of exercise physiology, pathophysiology, um, regular, like, human physiology, because not everything humans do is exercise, so, you know, your body still functions at rest. I also really like nutrition, and nutrition overlaps with physiology a lot, so fueling your body effectively and that kind of stuff as an, what's the term, ex, former, previous. As someone who once (laughs) actively participated in sport, 
something that's been increasingly interesting to me is flexibility and joint health. I actually did look into that, generally speaking, and there's not actually tons done on it because I don't know if we know how to do that. Maybe I'm completely wrong, but from what I could find before, a lot of our looking at either of those topics was kind of like a baseline to address a different topic, not actually flexibility or joint health itself. So that's kind of cool. And then another one is the your gut and your brain communicate. It's crazy. Yeah. And the bacteria in your gut can influence stuff in your brain and your brain influences stuff in your gut. And so stress does a weird thing with what, and yeah. So that was really cool. I never actually touched any of that, but yeah. I also, I never partook in any psychology research myself, but I would like to think on my own, I was like, I have psychology research, but I don't actually. But psychology is such a broad field. Psychology applies at so many different levels, and it's cool. Yeah, psychology is interesting because a lot of people say that psychology is the fake science, when really it's like, it's kind of the most science or maybe I'm just biased because I do like psych, but it's... It's not a fake science, no. But I do understand how someone who is STEM-oriented would say there are parts of psychology that are a bit fluffy, like group dynamics and stuff, Mm. because it's harder to quantitatively measure. So I can see where that comes from, but it's not fake. It's not. It's real. It's real. So how did you get into the research field, Kelly? So before I made the switch uh, to the program that I ended off with in my undergrad, there was the opportunity to do a thesis and me being me I got major FOMO and I'm like yo I hear all these people doing theses I should do a thesis do I know what that is no but I have FOMO so yeah I'll do it that was smart but the the longer I was in school the more I was just like yeah there is no way I'm doing a PhD I do not care about anything that much it seems like a lot of effort I do I'm not smart enough to come up with a question I'll just do the actions but I'll let the thinkers do the thinking and then the longer I'm in school now I'm just like wait a minute hold up do do I do I want to do PhD I don't anytime soon but if I'm really bored and I got funding then like why not why not but will I hate writing it? Yeah, because I hate writing. But I like the numbers. Do I like using stats? No. See, I only like 2% of the research process, but I feel like the 2% is just a very valuable experience. But um, the, the whole PhD research grad, that seemed like too much. But I did want to get my foot in the door and understand what it is on a smaller level. So doing a thesis seemed to be a good opportunity to understand what research entails and figure out why everyone was stressing over their thesis because I have FOMO and I just wanted to know. I just wanted, Kelly just wanted to be included. Kelly wanted to feel. I felt the stress, but yes, it's a feeling of sorts. <laughs> um, so the way I delved into my topic in particular was that I had a mentorship course And so that course was geared towards peer mentorship teaching opportunity for students of a class that was a year lower than us. Mm -hmm. 
And within that class, we did presentations, we did feedback and surveys to understand like our teaching experiences. And the whole realm of teaching research seemed interesting to me because I mean, I've already done a bajillion assignments on like the nitty gritty science stuff. I'm, I'm sick of science. But there are so many reasons why education is flawed. And so I'm like, if I can think of something to fix this, that'd be kind of cool. So with COVID affecting literally everything, that just, it made you realize so many gaps in knowledge and stuff because there are already so many gaps to begin with, but having gaps with a pandemic and things operating virtually, I was hoping to fill in that gaps. And therefore, I reached out to my professor from the mentorship course because it was small, so uh, she got to know everyone. And I was like, hey, I got an idea. You want to do it? She said, yeah. So we did it. <laughs> and I'm here now. And you're here now. Very untraditional. Most people go the route of like applying 300 different faculty members in hopes to get someone to respond, which thankfully I didn't have to do, but I, it, it's important to get that experience of rejection and trying to find the perfect match for you. How was your experience? Sorry, I can't get over the perfect match for you. It sounds like <laughs> eHarmony or something, but like for research. They should do that. That would actually be so beneficial to like pop in like, I mean, isn't that what LinkedIn's for? But like make it like a research where you still swipe. <laughs> do you Because sw <laughs> like we have the attention span of like a peanut. So let us keep swiping through things and like. But yes, you're right. That is what LinkedIn is supposed to be for. But it, <laughs> I find LinkedIn oversaturated and not helpful. <laughs> My experience with research or getting into research is a little different than Kelly's. At my university, an undergraduate thesis was a separate class from everything else where you had to qualify to even do a thesis and you had to be accepted by a supervisor to do a thesis. So I actually did apply to do it under a prof in exercise physiology and I got rejected. And then I, I applied to my actual supervisor. She said yes and the rest is history backtracking the way I got to the point of deciding to do an undergraduate thesis was kind of because I could and because I wanted the experience to know until that point in my schooling I enjoyed the research or projects of forms that we had done and I was like you know what why not try this I'm willing to accept the ick of stats to try this so that's how I got there um aside from a formal thesis if you are interested in research but don't want to commit fully to that kind of project, you can do directed studies, you can do literature reviews and all kinds of stuff under supervisors or as part of classes that you take. So that's what I actually ended up doing as well. I would take part two of classes from like third year or first semester of fourth year or seminars and that would give you the opportunity to practice conference style presentations and literature reviews and deep dive analysis of literature <laughs> or the work that's out there and it lets you test the waters without shoving you in but a thesis shoves you in and tells you to drown yeah 
Now that you have an understanding of where we were coming from with our research backgrounds, why don't we talk a bit about the research we've conducted ourselves? So research doesn't necessarily have to be a huge project. It can be even in the small little assignments. Those are meaningful. And so we're going to dive in a bit about some of the minor research we've done and also some of the major research or major in quotes because to some people might not be major but you know what to us those were big projects i'm gonna throw it off to katrina to brag about her (laughs) plethora of research opportunities i wouldn't call it a plethora there have just been a handful of little things and spatterings of stuff i've done throughout different classes still valuable i learned something so yeah i guess so the first one is I think it was considered a, well, I don't even know, a systemic review for a conference presentation. I don't know. It was on cystic fibrosis and the presentation of it in minority groups. Um, CF does not have a cure and typically presents in Caucasian populations. However, that doesn't mean it's not present in other populations. But because a majority are Caucasian, mm-hmm. <laughs> most of the research is focused there to the point of us not knowing anything about other populations. So me and a a group looked at CF and how it presents differently in symptoms and duration in different peoples. That was for a pathophysiology class, which was actually quite interesting. Stressful class, but interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, The next one was another systemic review conference presentation thing for advanced exercise physiology on materials used for ACL repairs. Girl. <laughs> and it's basically what it sounds like. When you tear an ACL, it can be reconstructed for partial and complete tears with different materials and kind of the tensile strength and the likelihood of tearing again. So that one was cool. That one hurt a bit because it was just reading a lot of the knee flexed from this angle to this angle. But yeah. The last two are literature reviews, the first one being for a sensory motor learning and control class on adaptive locomotion in transtibial amputees, as in people who are amputated from the knee down and how they relearn to walk. Ooh. Yeah, that one was pretty cool. They all sound cool in theory, but then when you're actually sitting in the research paper, you're like, wait, am I stupid? <laughs> or is the... What? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing with research. It just seems so cool. Like you'll read the title and it's like cool, and maybe you'll read the abstract. And it's like oh, and then you actually read the rest of the twenty pages, and it's like oh no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then the last one I did was for advanced exercise physiology again, and to Kelly's point about space being cool. I looked at astronauts and some of the physiological changes as they return to Earth. Yeah. So I looked at the cardiovascular, the vestibular, the musculoskeletal. A lot of the changes actually happen in cardiovascular, but obviously everything goes wonky because there's no gravity. Physics. Woo. It's G, negative 9.8 meters per second squared. You a G for remembering that. (laughs) (laughs) What are some minor research opportunities you've had, Kelly? When I was thinking about what research I've done, I think there were several classes where I've had to do research reports of sorts. Nothing formal in the sense of a deep literature review or like 
anything really presentable. It's more just like I had to answer a question for research papers. But amongst those papers, I was thinking some of the subjects that stood out throughout my several years in school. I thought there were so many things I had to do. The only things that really stood out was, as you mentioned earlier, uh, understanding the whole gut-brain axis. Axis? Axis? Axis. Axis? Axum. No. Axum. That's not a word. The gut-brain biome situation. The gut-brain connection. That. That. The gut. The gut feeling, you know? Yeah. You know, Kelly? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I found that really interesting because a lot of the times you you genuinely feel your body reacting from your head to your gut and to actually realize that there is a connection between the two we don't talk about that enough and finding that there are different trends from your mental state to your gut state like those those are correlated it's crazy is reading the research on that fun no but it's crazy (laughs) speaking upon other things that were not great to read but interesting to understand um i did have to read a lot of different policies in the past year for my program and so some of the things that we looked at were certain refugee policies i did an assignment based on assisted reproductive technology and understanding the effects of migration and economy on health yeah there's like a lot of things that play together that we don't really talk about but the world runs with so many things being interconnected so we should actually research on interconnectedness of stuff random thing when i was in medrad one of the reasons why i specialize in sonography is because i I just thought it was really cool that you're seeing the body live with how you're scanning things and with the physics of ultrasound because it's ultra sound and sound moves things you are able to use a certain degree of ultrasound to shake the blood-brain barrier to deliver medication to the brain. And so the thing is, the reason why it's hard to deliver certain medication to the brain is because it's too big. And so it's not permeable through vessels and stuff. But if you shake it enough, it be bigger to like put bigger stuff through. That's really funny because that is scientifically saying, shake the box harder until it all fits. Yeah. Which... <laughs> So if I did go down that route, I would have been interested in like looking more into that, but I wasn't that interested <laughs> and dropped out. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't know that either until I had to like do do a thing. I mean, the, the, the program that I was doing had nothing to do with that. It's just understanding the technology was pretty interesting. Wow. Yeah, you just got to shake it enough. You will have this medication. Accept it. Accept it. <laughs> Yeah, that was, those were all the minor things that came to mind. Everything else, I think I just had to shove it out of my brain because I can't take any more knowledge. Yeah, that's fair. Did you have a favorite that you looked at? Actually, I, I think a lot of these things are tied. I can't really think of like what was even my thesis. I don't even think that was the project. <laughs> okay, fair. Speaking of, what was your thesis on, Kelly? Thank you for asking. My research was about fostering academic resilience in an online setting. Wow. Yeah. 
So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the time I was conducting my research was when COVID hit. And so a lot of schools were shifting online. And from my observations, it seems like a lot of schools were pretty decent at adapting to online stuff. But while a lot of schools were transitioning pretty easily, my school did a terrible job. And it was evident in the Facebook groups, in the Reddit threads, in the group conversations. Everyone was complaining, and rightfully so. It's a difficult time. But also, the school just wasn't prepared with handling education online. And considering the increase in technology and like how many online tools you do use in the classroom, it only makes sense to be prepared for situations like this, considering the fact education is going to change things might not always be in person and even though we don't want to necessarily go to things being completely online i think it's good to prepare for online teaching and so i wanted to explore academic resilience in that setting and so for those who don't know academic resilience is it kind of is what it is resiliency within academics and so a student has a higher likelihood of academic success under any circumstances that they face, which is dictated by a mix of both internal and external factors. Mm -hmm. The external factors being things such as your social support and opportunities. If you feel as though you have a good connection with your with faculty members or your peers, if you have positive relations, um, you're able to develop high expectations to achieve, and you are engaging and participating in the classroom. Uh, the internal factors refer more towards the individual's natural characteristics, so their skills, attitudes, beliefs, and values about education, um, as well as their general motivations and stuff. And so um, academic resiliency is in the literature for how they do that in physical classrooms because you do have teachers observing, you do have tools to use in class to make things more engaging and to help students feel more motivated. But there's a gap in the sense that if everyone's at home, everyone's in a different setting, if everyone is just freaking out because they're just learning through a screen, how do you still give that sense of motivation back and help them feel more inclined to learning? Because learning is a long journey and who knows when the next pandemic will hit, knocking on wood, that there isn't a pandemic that hits. But in the case that we do have to do online education of any sort, we should be prepared handle it so yeah uh, my research was focusing on how to address that that's really cool thank you but yeah so the research that I conducted was for my specific program just because the supervisor I was with was with my program we combined it with another research project which was already geared towards our program in particular I kind of wanted to do the whole school it wasn't really my place to just say like, hey, let's, you know, take up a lot of resources and time to get data from the whole school. <laughs> With the research that I was doing, I was taking bits of the literature of what academic resilience was measured in classes and kind of translating those factors towards their experiences online. So this was done by means of surveys. I wish I had the chance to do focus groups. But alas, time and resources was just not on any one side. However, with the survey data, I was able to focus on understanding student stressors with the technology or just their online experiences, what types of supports they needed, whether that was internal supports, such as some of the resources that were provided by the school or within classrooms, 
or external supports such as their friends, family, any other websites or tools that they were using that weren't necessarily recommended by the school? Like what was helping them get through this time? And also getting a better understanding of the types of connections that they had throughout this period of time because on one hand it's like cool we can all connect because it's online and it's like you don't have to be as shy because it's just online but then on the other hand everyone just doesn't want to communicate online so there's a big disconnect and how does that disconnect affect our sense of engagement and resiliency because connection does foster greater sense of resiliency Mm -hmm. that was basically what my research was about the results of that was everyone was just sad and disconnected. Oh. And we need to do better. <laughs> yeah. If I were to say bluntly, that's it. There's hope. It's just, will institutions implement systems that are hopeful? I don't know. But there technically are ways to do better. It's just a matter of getting it on the bigger levels to do better. But I don't have the power to do that. All I did was have the power to write several pages of this paper <laughs> for credit that counts but yeah that was my wow thesis how was yours i felt like yours had a lot more science to it which i find intriguing i wouldn't say it was more science maybe it was just different than yours i looked at rotational biases of human movement and handedness so i feel like i'm proposing my thesis again when i explain all of these things (laughs) so rotational biases are the preferences in which people move. If you were to spin in a circle, which direction you spin? If you were to stir soup, which direction you stir? And when you cartwheel, if you can cartwheel, which leg do you lead with? And handedness. So which hand do you prefer to do things with? Most obvious, writing, but also in terms of picking up something heavy or carrying something that's hard to balance. And it sounds like you're only comparing two variables, but I actually looked at footedness and there was earedness and eyedness and the literature review for that was a heck of a time. I remember you mentioning the footedness because I think I'm left-handed and right-footed, but I didn't know eyedness and earedness. Yeah. um, Sorry, go on. (laughs) It's okay. Earedness is less, there's usually not a predominant ear because you kind of need to be able to hear pretty well from both ears for your sense of orientation. So that one's not as supported in the literature, but eyedness, it's not that one eye maybe sees better than the other, but it's which one focuses more. So you have your like, when you put the triangle in front of you and you close and you close one eye, which eye keeps your image like that, you know that? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. So to listeners, if you haven't heard, if you hold the triangle with your um, thumb and index finger of both hands, you put them together and make a little triangle in front of you. And if you look at the middle between the triangle with both eyes and then close one eye, if the image shifts, that means it's your non-dominant eye, and close the other eye. If the image stays the same, that's your dominant eye. So whichever eye that the image stays the same in is your dominant eye. That was poorly explained. (laughs) Yeah. I'm watching Kelly with a triangle, turning in her chair, opening and closing her eyes. It's... (laughs) Yo, I'm (laughs) bright-eyed! That's my word, like, vision-wise. I'm also right-eyed. Right-eyed. Sorry, I just, in my my X amount of years of being alive, I did not know. (laughs) Well, now you know. Wow. 
So yeah, I looked at all these different biases in human movement and tried to see if there was a correlation. So if you were right-handed, would you more likely be right-footed or prefer rotating in a right-hand direction and all these different things? The conclusions that I came to were that handedness was not a strong predictor of, like, anything, (laughs) basically, but footedness was a greater predictor of your preference for other motions. If you're left-footed, you're more likely to do other motions left-preferenced as well. And then you also have things called local and global movements. So a local movement is maybe something you do just with your hand, but a global movement would be with your entire body. So global movements have a stronger correlation with all other forms of motion than just local. And it's just because there's more of you involved, I assume. But it's actually really cool. We talked about this in a previous episode. (laughs) Sight is the only sense that will tell you about things at a distance. Hearing aside, you can see further than you can whatever. But there's work done that says in aesthetic sport, so figure skating, dance, gymnastics, where athletes might spin and you get judged on the technicality of and artistic aspects of the spin. The reading direction of a judge might influence the way they perceive the spin. Yo, you gotta change up all sports now. (laughs) Yeah. If you read left to right, like most Latin, Greek-based languages do, you're more predisposed to preferring rotations that happen clockwise. So much biases in the world operates that. Yeah. There's not as strong of a correlation for those who read right to left and preferring the opposite direction of rotation, but... Yeah, it's definitely there. And then there's the whole discourse on, like, if you read top to bottom and right to left, like, does that change things? Because certain, you know, Asian languages do that. But yeah, lots of stuff in that. That was more or less the thesis. It's really cool. It's a super saturated field in which no one's totally sure what's going on. But we all just try anyways. But yeah, even though theses and research might not have been the highlight of our academic careers thus far. I think there is some degree of value and sense of reward. It it might not be as obvious compared to the stress experience, but we contributed to that little, little teeny tiny pebble knowledge. Woo. Woo. Will it actually be used? Probably not. I don't know if it's really being cute, but, but it's there. It's there. Okay, cool. So now that you've gotten to hear a bit about our research experiences, our interests, let's just tell you a little something wrong with research because it, it, (laughs) a lot bit wrong with research, a lot bit wrong with research. There's, it's a glorified, but also problematic field. There's great and there's not so great. And so let's break that down. Trina, how do you feel after your thesis, after all of your assignments, after just understanding what this whole research thing is in general? What are your thoughts? One of the biggest things that came out of my time researching was the fact that all the publications are in these select journals and people who maybe actually need information don't have access to it. 
So the work that I was doing might have been about handedness and preferences in limb use, which doesn't affect the general population in terms of health and stuff. But there's a lot of research out there about different diseases and pathologies and treatments and mitigating symptoms and stuff. But people don't have access to that because they're not academics. Knowledge exists, but it just circulates within conferences of academics or people who already know about it. And that doesn't create change. So that gap between what researchers know and what the general public knows bothers me. (laughs) But there are people who sum up academic papers and put them into news articles and stuff that are available to the general public. They don't always interpret research well. And that's how you get things blowing up that are wrong. And I know it's hard to read research papers, but between the lack of access to journals and the sometimes poor interpretation of scientific literature, there's a really big gap between what science knows and what people know, and it's not good. Facts. Now that I'm like almost done school, I'm kind of scared to lose my student account because then I won't be able to... I mean, not that I read research for fun. I, I really do not. But just the having that access to all of these articles simply just with your student account or with like... Your school Wi-Fi does wonders because when you're trying to look for something and you read like a really cool title or abstract and you're just like, wait, this is the one, but you got to pay 60 US dollars. And it's like, I just want to know, like information shouldn't be this difficult to access. And like you said, it's supposed to benefit people, but if it's not reaching the people, it will benefit. What is the point? Yeah. (laughs) And The point that you mentioned earlier about this information circulating amongst only the professionals who are interested in it, you're right, it it doesn't really go anywhere beyond that. For my research, it was about pedagogy, so like about teaching and learning. And so the conference that it was presented at was for professors who are interested in teaching and learning. The sad thing is that you have all of these teachers and professors who are like, getting all riled up and giggly and happy about like we are going to make change we are going to teach well and i'm like yo these are some of the best props i've ever seen and some like interesting props from around the world but the thing is it's only the good profs who care about education who are in those spaces so of course they're gonna get something out of it but what about the people who actually need to become better profs they're not interested in attending those conferences and so that's why the bad profs still remain bad profs <laughs> it's the information never breaks out of the bubble that it's in and arguably you could say what's the point because it sometimes it doesn't actually create change and it's frustrating a lot of studies are on young neurotypical healthy individuals which i understand is baseline and there are a lot of ethics and complications and stuff for working with atypical populations but a majority of the world is not young or healthy So just the lack of work on other populations just means we know nothing about them. And you can't assume that me as a physically healthy, neurotypical individual, my results apply to literally anyone else. So just the lack of diversity. I'm not going to scream because I don't want to hurt our listeners or your ears. (laughs) But I am internally screaming. Because it is 2022, but explain to me 
why we got millions and billions of dollars going towards research that only benefits a certain population because that certain population is only a small fraction of the world population and you can't apply the same interventions on everyone because in fact it might actually result in poorer health outcomes than the original condition if you apply those interventions that only benefit a specific group of people and it i mean we we are like in more of like the health sciences range and so we see a lot of the research we've read do involve people and just different conditions and the outcomes and stuff it's just crazy to think that people are now recognizing oh we should probably check how this is on let's say a racialized group or how this works in women they're like half of the population is women because you know our hormones do different things yeah and yet there's so much research lacking for literally half of the world's population my specialization is about globalization and equity and so every week is just a new problem about why things are inequitable and just hearing about all of these struggles that certain groups go through because the research isn't there for them is just so frustrating because it could be there if people cared kelly's screaming like visibly screaming but not audibly screaming because yeah <laughs> a couple weeks ago we had this one lecture about uh, gender inequity and we were talking about certain cardiovascular interventions to prevent um think it was to help with recovering from heart attacks or whatever and a lot of the outcomes were like significantly worse on women because the only people who they've trialed on were just men and it was approved because I mean the data shows it works and so you apply that same intervention on women but then they were more inclined to having more heart complications mm -hmm. because it was just and I just People are literally dying because you're just not caring to cater health to them. And health is so influenced by your culture and your genetics. And I just... Yeah. And we're not saying that results that are found from the populations that research is done on won't apply to other populations. But the whole point of research is to not assume that it does. Mm -hmm. And since we don't know... We can't just assume, oh, we did it for one people. It's going to be the same for them. Even if it is, research functions as if it isn't. Therefore, you have to look into the other matters. Yes. <laughs> also, another th I was watching this video earlier about this guy ranting about the thing that's wrong with medicine. And it's about how medicine is so rooted. I mean, like, obviously, yes, it is rooted in science and facts and like what the research has shown. But a lot of stuff has not been shown. And so you can't make your judgment solely on what is peer reviewed and what is published. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, yes, you are to make a judgment. And yes, like it should be deemed as more reliable because more people and like the experts have seen it and approved it. But there are a lot of other healthy alternatives that might not even be considered or published. And those should still be considered with how you make your own personal health assessment because things that work for you might not even be published. But it's up for you to make a judgment and operate those functions or interventions that you do personally safely. Yeah. So like don't have high dose of like XYZ. Maybe try a small thing because that might work for you and it just might not even be known 
to the general publications. And like, I mean, a doctor's brain can only fill up with so much and they only know what's there. And so they might not know what's best for you. But also like trust your doctor. Like they, they, they spent a lot of time studying. So you, you should trust them to a certain degree, but also be careful with your judgment because research is very much lacking in certain areas. Yeah, I, I have so many things to say. It's just because something is published doesn't mean it's right. Yes. And there's so much beef in the research community itself. There are lots of articles that contradict each other because mm-hmm. sometimes results are inconclusive and that's okay. But the thing is, if a researcher doesn't like what someone else has said or disagrees with them, they can release a notice or a statement and basically professionally tell them all the reasons they're wrong. And it just adds to the literature or the discourse. And it, like, the more scientific papers I read or I read as part of my research or schooling journey, the more I was like, wait, there's no standard for anything. Nobody knows what they're doing. Adding on to the no one knows what they're doing, if you don't understand stats, don't worry because literally no other scientist understands stats either except for the statisticians who like plug I mean I'm pretty sure they 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 know what they're doing and they effectively plug and chug those numbers they I can't I don't want to like degrade their work they 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 they're doing a thing that literally no one understands and it's it's crazy because you kind of can just put a number to anything and it becomes believable mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily the case because Mm-mm. I don't even have an example. You know, sometimes you'll like see on the internet 10 students reported having 15 chicken pox. And like it just, it just, because you put a number to it, it just sounds more believable. Yeah. And that's the messy thing with literacy and. Sp- sp- oh, God. Speaking about literacy, yo, I do not know how to read. <laughs> <laughs> and after years of schooling, I've come to accept the fact that. I guess I am kind of dumb, but you know what else is dumb? The people writing it, because they can make it a lot more simpler, but they're not because they're making research exclusive to the people of those expertise. And again, it reduces the whole accessibility component, because if you don't understand what you're reading, you can't exactly get useful information out of it and apply it forward. It's not as efficient to have to define every four words, and it just makes assignments a lot more time consuming than it needs to be. Yeah. And like you said earlier, research is so glorified where we just assume they're smarter. And yes, there's a level of they are educated. They have a different knowledge base than us, but they that doesn't make them fundamentally smarter than other people always. I don't know if I'm going to include this, but this gives the context what I'm about to say next. <laughs> Basically, I heard an interview with a musician who's very well now is very well established in the industry and has collaborated with a bunch of different people on stuff. And so when they're brainstorming ideas, they just spitballed things left, right, and center. And as they built a reputation for themselves, the people they worked with were more agreeable to everything they said with the more Mm. experience they had, Mm. regardless of if it was a bad idea or not. So people assume because they had more experience that they were more likely to have good ideas more frequently. But that's not true. The same is true for academia. People assume if you have more research experience, you are smarter, or the ideas you say are better, or your analysis might be better. 
So someone might take a bad idea that a PhD student said. They might receive it with more consideration than something a master's student said. Even if it's the same bad idea, just because of the reputation. And just because you've been doing something longer doesn't mean your ideas are always good. Facts. I personally am really thankful that I wasn't in any sort of lab or in a situation where I was working with people who do have that very strict hierarchy. However, I've heard tons of stories in which people feel uncomfy with the amount of power some people hold just because they have a greater degree of knowledge and they might literally have a piece of paper to acknowledge the fact that they have that greater degree of knowledge. But if you don't give these new budding ideas a chance, then how are they supposed to go? Like you shouldn't have to wait for someone to be more professional in order for action to be taken place with some of these ideas because there are brilliant people who just might not have the certain certifications to express their brilliant ideas. And then another thing with reputation is funding and schools. There are smart people around the world who do deserve to get recognition and funding. And just because your school doesn't have that reputation or it's, it's like the rich getting richer system because you have all these reputable institutions who are getting more funding and getting more recognition, thus getting more funding, thus getting more recognition. And then smaller scale institutions not having those means. And so then it takes away from them being able to ha have more students. Like some students seek out certain institutions just because of their reputation. And some students, that's, that might not even be feasible to them. They might go to a school because that's what's closest to them. And it sucks that they miss out on those opportunities just because of reputation, which is... It's hard to build up a reputation. <laughs> When the system's already set on having the high people go higher and the low people struggling to go higher. Funding is genuinely luck. Your department or your supervisor, whoever you're working with or for, has to have the influence, the power, and sometimes the previous funding or experience or, again, luck to get future funding. And you can get a project denied for seemingly no reason because you are not going to output the quota that whoever is offering the funding wants. There's so much priority on quantity output over quality. It's ridiculous. Like, profs that are tenured, first off, it's borderline impossible to get tenured. I've been talking to profs who who are like, what, I don't, what's the... The thing before you're tenured, and like, they've been trying to get tenured for like a significant amount of time, like five to ten years, and when you're not tenured, you don't have the same benefits like job security, you don't have that stuff. And then once you are tenured, you're required to output like five to six papers a semester, whatever it is. So then people are like, shoot, again, they go for quantity over quality. And <sighs> I'm frustrated to just talking about it. <laughs> you spend a majority of your early schooling life being told your identity is based on the grade that's on that paper. Especially as you get into high school, you need that grade to get into that university. And somewhere along the lines, the narrative shifts where it's like, oh, you're more than a grade. You get to do extracurriculars or like, congrats, you've made it to post-secondary. Now you can, whatever. Ugh. C's get degrees. Yeah. <laughs> and then as you near the end of your post-secondary and maybe consider post-grad stuff, the narrative shifts back to 
your identity comes from this grade. Your identity comes from how smart you are. And if you are pursuing post-grad things, it feels like there's a level of toxicity where it's just like you have to be outputting. You have to be the smartest in the room. You have to be bringing new ideas or else you aren't like worth being there. Mm-hmm. And there's so much stress on everyone in the academic community to get the funding to be part of the conference, to add to literature. There's a lack of support for students and profs alike who are going through these things for the pursuit of knowledge. Where did we lose? The reason for research, I assume, at its core is curiosity. Mm. And now we've turned it into consumerism. And... (laughs) I'm screaming. There are good things about research fully. That's how we advance technology. That's how we learn new things. It's important. And I wasn't even fully in it the same way as Kelly might be or people who are doing post-grad or people who did more undergraduate research. But just seeing friends and other people and having at least read the literature, I just, it's some next level. It's something. To your point about consumerism, I did not think about it exactly like that. But now that you mention it, I am heated right now. (laughs) Because like you said, research is kind of supposed to be something where you explore your curiosity. Whatever goals you have following your education, following your research experience, research is more treated as like something you check off rather than something that you experience. And so you have all these people trying to compete for research spots because they need to check off a box, not because they're truly, truly interested in the research. And don't get me wrong, there are definitely like super wonderful people who are very passionate and will do all the work to get the research position and do the work for said research. And like even before that, they were already actively engaged in the subject matter. But it sucks because research doesn't seem as like an, as much of an open opportunity for people to test their curiosity. If you're a shy bean, it's hard to get to, to, to like shoot your shot and deal with all the rejections. But if you are good at speaking and networking, those are good skills to have. But some people do naturally have that. And those people are more inclined to getting those positions from what I've seen than like I guess the more reserved, quiet, shy, like I I don't people who want to try research because again, it is this glorified thing that people use to check off. And then when you make it competitive and when you make it inaccessible, it just results in a certain group of people getting those spots, doing that research, releasing those results, seeing those results. And you don't go much further unless you diversify the people in research. Mm -hmm. And it's frustrating. Because, I mean, I do think we are getting better and I would like to believe that there is room and that there is progress. It's just, I wish it was faster. That's why it's really important that you have more representation in those fields because they know what questions to ask. They have the experiences to back up as to why something is worth seeking. But if you have the same people or the same type of people, your your research is still going to be very limited. And that's why it shouldn't be as glorified as it is. I think if you do put in the work and like whatever outputs you get, that's great. You should celebrate that work. But as a whole, 
it's just something that's seen beyond people and so unattainable when it really shouldn't be. And yeah, and that being said, research does not necessarily have to be like you're finding the cure to cancer or that you are sending 10 people to Mars. Research is honestly found in everything and anything, and I think any research of any source is still credible. In my earlier undergrad years, I had, I think it was a speaker, or, or we were presented with some person with a PhD, and they were doing their research on x-ray technology to observe painting patterns. Mm -hmm. And so using an x-ray, they're able to see the layers. And when you see the layers of paint, you can kind of understand the story or the, the progress behind how a painting was painted. Because when you see a painting, you kind of just see the final result. But with an x-ray, you kind of see all of these things. And it's like stuff like that, which is not cancer. It's not putting man on the moon. It's like, hey, here's an idea. Let's explore it. And I wish research was kind of looked at in that lens where it is this field where you can explore your curiosities and explore all of these things that might not seem, it might not seem worth looking, but honestly, anything is worth looking if you care about it. And we should help people who care about things get to seek the stuff they care about. Okay, the other thing that irritates me about research that I didn't realize until recently was just methodology. A lot of people kind of feel as if research has to be this cool, innovative thing, but honestly, research just builds on whatever exists. And so it's worth exploring different methods with certain research topics because some people are very fixated on certain methods, which I mean, it makes sense if you're very fixated on your, like, your topic and your results, and it makes sense that you believe that those are the methods that work, but that's not necessarily the case. People are realizing that mixed methods can actually do wonders with your research, and it might not be applicable for every research topic, but I think it's still worth exploring the different methodologies with different subjects because it can actually help enhance your field of view with research rather than limiting yourself to, you have to do this to get this because that's what people did before. No, there's actually so much room for research to grow with different methods, with different subjects, with different topics and areas. And the sad thing is, is that a lot of research is left incomplete because if there isn't enough care for it, it kind of just sits and the results are just somewhere, it just fizzles and, you know, you might just have a bunch of Excel files that didn't really go anywhere. And even if it did go somewhere, you don't know if those hands are going to be using those Excel files. And that's the sad thing that a lot of people think that research has to be, I found the answer to this and that needs to be shown. Sometimes it's showing that you don't have the answer is worth showing. So that way people don't make the same mistake. And that would save a lot of resources and money. Well, thank you for letting us get that off our chests. <laughs> it's just a lot of bottled up anger that, honestly, that might only be just a fraction of the anger that we have with research. But there is hope. I think. We do have good things to say about research and our experiences in it. Yes, we didn't necessarily do this for nothing. Maybe. I think. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about some of the positive experiences with research. Or for the people who might feel a bit hesitant about the field, what are some good things about research, Katrina? It is a very rewarding experience. 
on the other end of it, or even the, in the process of doing it, while you're collecting data or maybe analyzing different things, there's a level of satisfaction when you complete components of research or, you know, defend your thesis or present your proposal. Research is basically a massive project, nothing more, nothing less, and there are always satisfying parts to being done with a certain component of it, right? And to be able to look back at your like 20, 30, however many page document is satisfying to know, you know, I did that or, you know, I, ha I had a big brain thought. And it is cool to network with people who have similar research interests as you or who know the different things and have those engaging conversations. You'll always learn different things from different people. And as a lifelong learner or someone who values the process of learning at least, I really enjoyed that part of making your own conclusions. The other thing is research can be done in teams. And when you do it in teams, it feels a lot nicer. When you're crossing 15 different variables, then you're not doing it all alone. And more pairs of eyes catch more mistakes. And you get that shared experience of, okay, sure, maybe there's more than one name on the front of that paper that gets submitted. But, like, share the success. So much of the research process is the journey. And, yeah, you want to be able to output something that you think is worthwhile. But the learning comes from doing and who you do it with, I find, whether that be just a supervisor or multiple other people. It's a really valuable learning experience. Even if you never pursue anything academic again, it's a certain level of critical thinking that I think is really important because it can be applied outside of academia. I agree. I didn't exactly have much of a research, like a formal research team as other projects do. Like for some people who worked at the lab, it's kind of like the lab team mm -hmm. that works together. My project wasn't really like that. But getting to work with people who care about the work that you do and who have you in their best interest, they want to see you succeed. It just, it feels really nice to have people support you. Mm -hmm. And again, with things being all glorified and stuff, some I mean, I look up to instructors and TAs and people in academia with much respect because of the work that they put in. And like, they just seem so far removed from me as a student. But then once you actually get to work with them, it's like, wait, you guys are human too. <laughs> yeah. They're brilliant, but they make mistakes and it just, it humanizes the whole experience. They're not just a bunch of robots putting out papers. I mean, so, some, some people are, but not the people I worked with. And it just felt really nice to bond with my supervisor. Um, so I knew her because she was a professor for one of my courses. So I knew her from that lens. But then working with her as a supervisor and doing research on education and her being a teacher, it was so interesting to see where her opinions lie as a professor, where my opinions lie as a student and trying to see if like, is there any way we can bridge this information together to make an impact? And not to say that every research thing has to make a huge impact, but just even that process of putting something out there, whether it is published or whether you present your research because you kind of have to do that for your course grade. Either way, it's still a really rewarding experience because after all of those hours of typing nonsense, it's sense to someone. It might not be to you after hours of looking through it. But it's kind of cool to just take in all of this information and put it out in a way that's worth it to someone out there. And even if it's you, that's cool too. Mm -hmm. 
the only reason we know anything is because somebody was curious and they tried. And people argue, why are we doing more research when we already know stuff? But in reality, there's a lot we don't know. And as Kelly touched on, there's a lot of intersectionality and diverse populations that haven't been addressed. And research is the closest thing we have in terms of making advances in society, in theory at least. Aside from the lack of communication between theory and practice, that aside, this is the closest we get to learning and deriving connections between different things that we observe. There will always be value in that and understanding the way things function around us. Mm -hmm. Recognizing patterns and how humans interact and how things in the world function and occur is important and helps us relate to things and each other. Yeah, the world isn't as black and white as we oftentimes think in that research is presented as like the definitive answer to things. I think the cool thing about research is that it's always evolving. And like you mentioned, there's so many things that connect together. And when I'm thinking about the whole research process that I did, the stuff that stood out to me is like, yes, the end product, because you're finally done. God, that was, that was not a good couple of weeks back then. But that, I mean, the, the end product is rewarding, but also the beginning when you're trying to piece things together. I found that such an engaging and exhilarating process when you're just like, ooh, idea connects to this idea, but what about this? And then next thing you know, you have a web of like dozens and dozens and dozens of lines, which on one hand is overwhelming and stressful because it's like, what the heck do I do with all of these ideas? But then on the other hand, it makes you realize that the world is connected in so many ways and you have the power to connect and do something meaningful or it might not be what you might deem as meaningful, but it'll connect and go somewhere. And that's really cool. With the whole research process, I mean, when we did research, it was for our course credit and we had grades assigned. Did you have a grade assigned to yours? Yes, I yeah. did. But when you look at research in general and the whole process with conferences and being able to read uh, certain publications, it's just cool to immerse yourself in all of that information when it's not tied to a grade. Mm -hmm. Conferences, I mean, you don't really have, you're not graded to memorize every student's conference or like poster presentations. But it's just really cool to sit and think like, wow, look at all of these projects that people are doing. Look at all of these connections that people are making that I would have never realized. Seeing that all put together is just so cool. And the opportunities that research has, again, like we said, it was limited to like certain groups and it, it still is. But it also opens the doors for you to see people from different areas in the world who have the same interests as you or different institutions or different, I mean, we've kind of had to do things virtually. So is it really much of a difference? No, but there are opportunities to travel if things were safe. Despite our frustrations and positive takeaways out of our research experiences, I do recommend research opportunities. Go in humbly. Very humbly. Understanding that your ego, your brain, and your butt are going to be handed to you on a wooden platter. It's not what anything presents it to you as, but it is a very good opportunity and it teaches you critical thinking skills, discipline, time management, those things in a very different context of this very structured, very formal, but somehow really informal setting, again, I think is very valuable because it turns into professional attributes later. And, you know, you might learn a thing or two along the way. 
I really hope you do learn something. You have to... But if you don't, that is okay. And like Katrina said, it's a very humble, very, very humbling experience when you first start things out. And don't let that scare you from actually pursuing it in general. As we said a bajillion times, yes, it is very glorified. And there are so many aspects of it that just seem so out of touch with elitism and the hierarchies of everything. But there is so much room for growth and that's where you step in. So whether you identify as some sort of marginalized person in any sort of capacity, we need you there. Or if you're someone who's a bit confused but has a cool idea, we still need you there. We can help ha- I mean not we, I mean I can't I can't help you out, but someone <laughs> will be able to help you out with refining your ideas and making your ideas possible. And like a relationship, you don't gotta settle with them. There are other there are other people in the sea of research where you can actually make things possible. And the beauty of it is that there's actually so much opportunity out there. So don't stress yourself out too much. You'll make it somehow, some way. Your research doesn't have to have a Nobel Prize. It's okay. It could just be something that you're interested in. And that thing that you're interested in doesn't necessarily have to have the right answer to be worth looking at. A lot of research might be left with inconclusive results or just your hypothesis might not be proven. But does that make a bad research? No, I think it's still valuable research nonetheless because people need to know about all these things so that way that those mistakes aren't made again and again. So regardless of what your interests are, and your degree of knowledge and your personality and your identity like don't let those things stop you from pursuing research and yes we said it's like terrible in so many ways but it's great in so many ways and there's hope if you're there so go for it yeah having been on both sides of research as the researcher and the participant Help a researcher out, please. If people are recruiting on your campus or in your community, you see calls from friends on social media or, again, on your campus and flyers. I know COVID has made things a little bit different, but things still happen virtually. Please help. Please participate. Please look into it. It'll make their day. You might even get compensated. Sometimes funding allows for, I don't know, little gift cards or... Depending on the study, you know, a meal or two might be included. You build bonds this way with the researcher, and it's also a foot in the door if you are personally considering pursuing research in the future. It gets you involved in the community, seeing what's going on, and you get to contribute to the narrative of research about whatever they're looking at without having to do all of the unpleasant analysis part of it. There's a Reddit thread called sample size where people will post uh, recruitment calls mostly for online things like surveys and whatever for academic reasons or just personal debates so again from a former researcher please help we appreciate everything yes i need to do a better job of doing that because there's so many surveys i started and then i'm like wait this is too long and then i don't finish it but you should finish those surveys even if it's only to get a chance of one of two $5 Amazon gift cards that you're probably not going to get because there's thousands of other people completing the survey. It's still worth completing. <laughs> you know what? Do it for the intrinsic 
reward of knowing that you helped somebody. Yes, and that your experience with addressing that data is really important because, again, with the whole representation thing, who knows, you might be that special bean that like changes the way the research is read and we need you. And also it helps advances in any sort of capacity because any opinion matters in research. Mm -hmm. Just do it! Please? Please. And if you get a follow-up, yo, that'll, it would also be nice if you do that too because a lot of the times research is lacking due to loss of follow-up. Not to make you do double the homework, but if you can do the follow-up, that'd be nice. And at researchers, make your surveys better. Make it more engaging. Make people want to do the follow-up. Bro, put the Kahoot music. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or the Wii music. Get the conditioning in there. Yeah. If you'd like to keep up with us, feel free to follow us on Instagram at the glass chest. At the end of the day, we've all got some stuff we want to get off our chest. Till next week, stay, stay glassy. glassy.